Hey everyone, welcome to episode 42 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So we're coming to you a bit later than usual this week. There have been a number of high-profile vulnerabilities that have come out at the start of this week that have held up uh, the publication of this week's episode, so apologies for that, uh, but will at least certainly give us something interesting to talk about next week. So we'll do our usual roundup of the vulnerabilities and fixes from uh, last week, and this week we've got a bit of a special treat for you. We've got an interview that was recorded with John, myself, and Jamie Strandberg from the security team. Uh, we did that when we were all together in Toronto a couple of weeks ago for uh, the company sprint. And so, yeah, we have Jamie there talking about snaps. Uh, that's going to be really interesting. All right, so let's dive into it. So this week, the first vulnerability I want to look at is one in Bash. So I covered this actually back in episode 40. Uh, in this case, uh, this is a fix for Bash in precise extended security maintenance and for trusty extended security maintenance customers. As I mentioned back in episode 40, I talked about this. This was where uh, RBash, the restricted Bash shell, could be uh, bypassed using uh, Bash commands. So that's been fixed for our extended security maintenance customers as well now. We also have an update for uh, Glib for our extended security maintenance customers and for users running Xenial. Uh, in this case, we had an update for Glib, which I detailed back in episode 40. So this unfortunately introduced a memory leak. The original patch used an API which would obtain a string, uh, a read-only copy of the string, and backporting it, that function wasn't available, and so a different function was used which would return the same string. However, in this case, a copy of the string was returned, and so that was not being freed, and so you yeah, introduced a small memory leak. So that has been fixed in Glib. We've got an update for Mercurial. So one CVE here fixed for Disco. In this case, uh, the problem was that you were able to write files or write to files outside of the repository checkout by using a combination of symlinks and sub-repositories within your malicious repository. So if you were cloning uh, untrusted repositories that contained symlinks, uh, you could have got hit by this. So there's a couple of ways that you can mitigate this if you aren't able to update to this uh, latest package in Disco. Uh, you can either disable the support for sub-repositories in your local Mercurial configuration, or you can make sure that any repos you clone don't contain malicious symlinks, which, yeah, that's a bit difficult. So yeah, certainly I urge you to upgrade your Mercurial version if you're using Mercurial in Disco. We've got an update for BWA. So one CVE here fixed for Bionic and Disco. I think this is the first time I've ever mentioned this package in the podcast. This is actually a genome sequencing package. So it's used to map DNA sequences against large reference genomes. And so this is the kind of thing that's used by scientists who are involved in the human genome project and mapping there. In this case, it takes input from uh, these .alt files, and uh, this contains a name for the DNA, uh, the DNA sequence in question, and this is read into a fixed-size buffer. So uh, not surprisingly, you can get a buffer overflow if the name is too long. In this case, the buffer was allocated on the stack, so it's possible you could get control flow control via this. And interestingly enough, even in the code, it actually had a note there saying, fix me, possible segfault here. So interestingly, the developers were aware of this, but hadn't actually fixed it. But yeah, we've now fixed that for our uh, scientific users in Bionic and Disco. We've also got an update for PHP. So this is for our extended security maintenance customers, in particular for precise extended security maintenance and for trusty extended security maintenance. In this case, there was a use after free in the embedded Onigaruma regular expression library. Uh, in this case, if 
your regular expression was uh, contained multibyte sequences or if the input string itself contained multibyte sequences but uh, say the regular expression did not so you kind of need this vice versa situation uh, it would then go and convert both and would result in a use after free because one of them would get freed first and then freed a second time so in this case the fix was simply to just disallow processing if uh, one of them is multibyte and the other is not We've got an update for Rack. So one CVE here fixed for Xenial and Bionic. Uh, in this case, Rack is a middleware used for writing Ruby web applications and it contained a cross-site scripting vulnerability in uh, the, the standard web interface for that. So that's been fixed. Uh, and last up, we've got an update for Postgres. So two CVEs here fixed for Postgres in Xenial, Bionic and Disco. Uh, so one of these is for Disco only. Uh, so if a database uh, had super user defined hash equality operators uh, defined as part of it, this could allow attacker then to read arbitrary server memory. So that has been fixed. Uh, and so the other vulnerability which affected uh, all of Xenial, Bionic and Disco was if a function had been declared as security definer, an attacker could execute arbitrary SQL as the identity of the function owner. Now, uh, this also needs execute permission on the function and it actually requires the function to make use of inexact argument types. Uh, otherwise, this wouldn't occur. So yeah, a bit uh, specific, but yeah, they've been fixed for Postgres as well. So that takes us to the end of the usual roundup of vulnerability and fixes. A bit shorter this week. That was good. Uh, so next up, uh, I've got a, an interview that was recorded with Joe, myself, and Jamie Strandberg. We did this at the recent uh, company Sprint in Toronto. And so we sat down with Jamie to talk over snaps and snap security. He's heavily involved in this, has done a lot of the work in kind of defining the security policy and the security mechanisms for uh, the snap application system. And Joe and I also actually had a quick chat as well about this recent uh, Capital One breach as well so yeah uh, apologies in advance for uh, the audio quality of this we were all sitting around a conference room and it's quite echoey and there's a fair bit of background noise so I've tried to clean it up as best I can but apologies in advance for that hey Joe so we are in uh, where are we we're in Toronto this week uh, <laughs> and uh, the big news of the week is this hack on Capital One and it looks like it was via AWS yeah, so it wasn't a vulnerability in AWS. It was someone at Capital One misconfiguring their S3 bucket, which, I mean, we see time and time again. And uh, if you've ever set up anything in AWS, you kind of have to go out of your way to make it insecure. Yeah, when I originally set this podcast up, actually, I was hosting the audio on an S3 bucket. And, yeah, you have to explicitly turn it on to be public. You know, they're not public by default. Yeah, but I think yeah. people don't understand how to do ACLs. So what they do is just like when, you, when your networking is not working, you turn off the firewall, right? Mm. People will go ahead and turn off the, um, the, the security features in AWS stuff, which, by the way, you shouldn't do that just like you shouldn't turn off your firewall. Yep. So they, apparently 100,000 records were stolen, um, although they're saying only 140,000 social security numbers were, uh, were stolen. That that's still a lot, but but these hundred thousand records, um, they were credit card applications. So it was your income, it was your address, your date of birth, um, social security number. All like this is incredibly rich information. So this is pretty 
I don't know. I think this is pretty bad from a misconfiguration standpoint. Um, in something that we know about, we know S3 is a problem when, when misconfigured. I mean, this is in the news constantly. So I wasn't able to tell from the article. It seemed to be confusing because I saw some things on Twitter that said, oh, this, this former AWS engineer was arrested um, after they bragged on GitHub that they had done this. Um, I wasn't sure if they were a current Capital One employee or if they were just completely unrelated. I wasn't able to tell from the, from the article and from the things I, I found on Twitter because it was kind of going back and forth. But, um, you know, this is basic security stuff, right? You have to secure your data. You have to do an assessment of how sensitive the data is and take appropriate precautions. If this were just, I don't know, um, public, if this were just a backup of the public web pages, okay, I wouldn't be as surprised because somebody was probably running some automated script and didn't know what they were doing. This is highly sensitive PII. That is not a good story. That is something you should know you need to protect. So I'm really surprised this happened in this day and age. Yeah, and I guess it also probably forms part of their core business as well. It's not, um, yeah, yeah it, does, it does strike me as something that should have been quite obvious that you really need to pay attention to and you know, design that system such that yeah, you're not exposing that inadvertently or, yeah. Yeah, this is crazy. I think, um, I think this is the biggest PII hack since Equifax, right? So if that's the case, Equifax got a $700 million fine. I wonder what this will get. Although Equifax is different, right? Because you as a person never engaged with Equifax. Right, they were they were they had your information on behalf of someone else, someone you never agreed to work with. So I wonder, since you're giving your information to to Capital One, I wonder if this how different this will be, since you were you were technically at that point a customer of them, where before you had nothing to do with Equifax. Um, clearly, I'm not happy with the Equifax one since I keep talking about it. Um, okay, this week we have a special guest, the one, the only Jamie Strambog. Jamie is the former manager of the security team. Jamie is one of the founders of the security team. I think he's been at Canonical for about 17 years now. Um, he's the author of UFW. He has worked with the community to make sure that Linux is more secure. He is also currently the lead of security for SnapD. So, Jamie, with that, can you tell us a little bit about Snaps? Sure, I'd be happy to. And thanks for the introduction. Small correction, it's 12 years, not 17. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, people may have heard about Snaps. I mean, they're great for publishers. They're cross-distro. You can ship what you want. There's lots of flexibility, lots of publishing controls and features. But what I'm here to talk about is uh, the security properties. I've been working on the sandboxing properties of snaps for quite a while now and uh, we we call them well they're a delivery mechanism snaps are a delivery mechanism for containerized applications and uh, by containerized I don't mean that they run like a, a docker container or a system container or something like that but it's something that uses uh, various kernel primitives uh, to, to run isolated on the system, but fitting into the system. So if you run PS, you see all your normal PIDs, all the same users and everything, but they're isolated from uh, the system and from each other. 
So in that case, like a malicious snap that was trying to, I don't know, launch a keylogger, if it were not a classic snap, but a confined snap, they wouldn't be able to do that, right? Right. So snaps uh, can come in different security confinement levels, if you will, or flavors. So by default, all snaps are in strict mode. And with strict mode snaps, they come with a default policy that only allows them to read and write uh, in areas of the file system that only they have access to and have enough uh, privileges to run themselves and just do basic stuff. Um, we also have a dev mode as a confinement, which allows, it's just, it's precisely for that. It's for when you're developing the snap, you can be running it uh, where the snap runs without confinement, but security policy violations are locked, but otherwise are allowed. And then, as you just mentioned, there is classic confinement, which isn't really confinement at all. It's a way for the snap to run without any confinement. But what's interesting uh, is we've got our our store, which is the delivery mechanism for snaps, and uh, people who choose to use classic confinement are not allowed to pat, to uh, distribute their snaps in the store unless they go through some sort of a review, and we have processes in place for that. When I made my first snap, it was a pile of Python code that was going to get access to to logs. And I, I wasn't really sure what I was what I was doing, but following the docs online, it ended up being pretty simple. But one of the neat things about it is I made a pile of of debs and pip and custom code I wrote, built my snap, and then no matter what box I installed it on with the simple snap install, it ran. It wasn't like oh well you've got this version of Python and this version of the of the um, PyPy module, so now it's going to break. And I, I was really I was very impressed with that. And that was just usability, not security. But the security part comes in. It had to get access to data in a... There's a very loud motorcycle behind us. Um, it had to get access to data in a, um, in a dot directory, in your home directory. So by default, Snap couldn't do that. So I right. could use a privileged option, which I think was what, dash private files? Personal files. Personal files. And instead, I just said, you know, I'll move, why should I distribute an app with that kind of access? So you just had to move the files to a different directory and everything worked. So actually, that was a really good way of thinking about the security of an overall application. Yeah. And as a developer, I mean, that's, that's what you're concerned with, right? Trying to get your application to work in a way that, that's safe, but also functional for your users. And really, the um, what you are bumping up against is, uh, well, the security policies. And I mentioned that they're containerized applications. And so we, we use several different kernel primitives in order to uh, sandbox the application. Uh, one's AppArmor. That gives us mediation of files and network capability signals, ptrace, Unix sockets, dbus. But then we also use... SecComp for syscall filtering, which will even use argument filtering for syscalls as part of the security policy. We'll also use device C groups to control access to hardware and a mount namespace. And then uh, for older releases, we use a dev PTS new instance. We don't use that on newer releases because that's just what the kernel does these days by default uh, when you mount dev PTS in the right way. 
So what you were working with initially was the default policy. And the default policy, as I mentioned earlier, allows you to do certain things. It allows you to write to dev null, you know, but it doesn't allow you to write to dev SDA. It doesn't allow you to have access to the logs in var log. But, but Jamie, I write directly to dev SDA because it's faster. <laughs> There's no file system involved. Not as a snap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's a classic snap, but that snap would be rejected. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, uh, so we have templated policy, which limits what an application can do by a lot. And that's useful in and of itself uh, for certain things. Um, most often, well, so we can extend the policy in various ways. And so we have something called interfaces. And there are all kinds of interfaces. Some might, these are just things like you might be familiar with in, in other, like on Android or, you know, where you have access to networking or you have access to this or that. And so we have different interfaces. So for like on server or edge, there's network, there's firewall, there's network control, which allows you to modify the routing tables and different things. And then we also have desktop interfaces for to allow access to Wayland or printing or, or different things. So the way the system works is interfaces consist of two sides. There's a slot side and a plug side. And you can think of it as a provider and a consumer or a server and a client. And in a lot of cases, that works just fine. So on by default, the system provides certain what are called implicit interfaces, like I just said, network or firewall. But um, And then the SNAP can plug those. So if you... If your SNAP needs access to networking, you plug network and you get that. If you need access to the logs, you plug log observe and you can get that. Now, what's interesting is that these interfaces are designed to allow applications to interact with the system and each other in controlled ways. And so an application can also provide a slot. So you might have the mirror SNAP that provides the Wayland slot so that a client can connect, can plugs the Wayland uh, interface, and then they can uh, communicate with each other view, via the standard Wayland pro protocols. And so that's uh, quite flexible and useful. Pretty cool. Um, I think Maybe for part one of our introduction to SNAPs, that might be enough information for now. It's a whole lot you've just told us. But let me follow up with some important questions, Jamie. Sure. Don't think about this. Favorite Black Sabbath singer, Dio or Ozzy? Well, I have to go with Ozzy. But I, do. I like Dio. Heaven and Hell, great album. Mm -hmm. But you got to go with Ozzy. It's, it's a, it, well, I just think Dio's got such a stage presence. But Dio's honestly, great. It's nothing against Dio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Super not awesome song. This is going to be an easy one. Diamond David Lee Roth or Sammy Hagar? Well, David Lee Roth, of course. I mean, how can you beat on Jane? <laughs> I mean, I don't be wrong. I think the Red Rocker is pretty good. But Fifty One Fifty is great album. There's other songs. Pound Cake, cool tune. Mm -hmm. But you know, David Lee Roth era all the way. It's it's kind of amazing. Next, favorite guitarist. Interesting. I've got, I've, okay, so I'll name the two that come to mind. I'll say Eddie Van Halen and Steve Morse. Okay. Um, Coke or Pepsi? 
Well, I don't really drink either anymore because I'm trying to cut out sugar. Oh, okay. <laughs> Iced tea or black coffee? Bubbly. Okay. Well, I think that is enough. Um, do you have any questions for Jamie, Alex? No, you've done a fantastic job, Joe. <laughs> well, awesome. Catch us next week when we're not in Toronto at a company sprint. Okay, so thanks, Joe and Jamie. It was really great talking to you guys. And next week, we'll actually have a follow-up uh, conversation that we had with Jamie as well on some of the history of the Ubuntu security team because Jamie is one of our longest-serving members on the team and he was able to give uh, a great insight into some of the history of the Ubuntu security team and the work that has uh, been done over time by the team. Uh, and so that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach the team at security at ubuntu.com. Or if you want to chat with us in real time, you can find us hanging out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network. Or finally, if you want to get to us on Twitter, you can find us at ubuntu underscore sec. Thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Remember, keep calm, enable automated upgrades, and I will speak to you again soon. Bye.